In our evening services, we are studying the types of the Old Testament. Signposts, pictures, foreshadowings of the Lord Jesus Christ that point clearly to Him. And let me remind you what we have seen because I want you to understand what sort of things we have been stating are types. In our first week, we looked at Adam, the type of Jesus as the federal head of the race, a one who acts for others. Our second type was the ark, the type of the one place to hide when the wrath of God is poured out in Christ. The third week, we looked at Christ in the saga of Abraham and his son Isaac. Fourth, we saw Joseph, the type of Christ, as the rejected kinsman and future Savior. In fifth week, we looked at the Passover lamb, pointing towards Christ, the spotless one. In sixth, we looked at the Old Testament prophet Jonah being swallowed by the great fish and coming out three days later as a clear type, Jesus says, of Christ in his resurrection. Seventh, we looked at Samson as a type of Christ. In the eighth week, we looked at manna as a type of Christ, the bread of life coming from heaven. The ninth week, we looked at the rock that poured forth living water. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock was Christ. There's no stretch to see that as a type. Last week, we looked at Aaron, the high priest, pointing towards Christ. And tonight, we will look at the person of Joshua. A few reminders about types. We've been saying all along that types are prophecy. They are pointing towards something in the new covenant, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And types are, are heavenly designed. They're not accidents. They're not coincidences. They're an integral part of the history of redemption. It's the Lord's sovereignty and his rule over history, his infinitely exact knowledge of the future that makes types possible. He knows what is to come, what person, what events are at the center of human history, And so the Lord weaves into human history all manner of signposts, anticipations, persons, institutions to teach his people long before these events come to pass. And we've been stating that with a true type, there's a clear point of resemblance. And some nights we've said there are 20 points of resemblance between this type. Tonight, there are so many between Joshua and the Lord Jesus, but we will confine ourselves to eight Points of correspondence between Joshua as he points towards Jesus. In a true type, no reaching or forcing needs to be done for this to be seen. And while this book tonight, as we're going to look at the book of Joshua, while this book focuses on Joshua, it doesn't introduce him. A little background and introduction. By the time of Israel's exodus, by the time of the text we just read a moment ago, Joshua chapter 1, he was already well known to all the people of Israel. Stay with me for just a moment as we walk through what Israel knew of Joshua, even before Joshua chapter 1. In Exodus 17, Joshua led the army of Israel to defeat the Amalekites as Moses lifted his hands in prayer. Joshua was down in the battleground, hand-to-hand combat, commanding the forces of God. In Exodus 24, Joshua joined Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders on the mountain of God. He saw God, worshiped God, ate the meal prepared by God. In Exodus 32, Joshua is on the mountain with Moses as he hears the people down below worshiping the golden calf. In Exodus 33, we learn that Joshua, as Moses' right-hand man, as his assistant, spent a great, of time, a great amount of time with Moses in the tent of meeting. 
In Numbers 11, Joshua raises a problem. In fact, this may be his one chink in his armor. In Numbers 11, he expresses a concern for the elders prophesying in the camp, and Moses has to scold him. In Numbers 13, Joshua is listed as one of the 12 spies sent into the land of Canaan. He and Caleb, as we'll see in a moment, were the lone voices urging Israel to go into the land. As a result, those two of the 12 spies alone went into the promised land while everyone else in his generation died. In Numbers 13, Moses names this man Hoshea, as he's called up until that moment, Joshua. It's critical for our understanding of Joshua's role as a type of Christ that this title was given to him. His given name was not Joshua, it was Hoshea. In Numbers 27, after God told Moses he would not enter the land, the Lord told Moses to set Joshua apart and he would lead Israel into the land. In fact, we're told in Numbers 27 that Moses and the priests lay hands upon Joshua, almost ordaining him for this office of victorious redeemer. And in Deuteronomy chapter 1, all through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses speaks often about Joshua taking his place as Israel's leader. He even tells him three times to be strong and courageous. Then those words are repeated again in Joshua chapter 1. And what we learn from this background, even before we delve into how he points to Christ, we learn that Joshua was both a spiritual leader and a military leader and one equipped to lead Israel in Moses' absence. But what I want to do tonight is I want to show you how he's a signpost. He's a type, how he points to Christ. When you read Joshua of him, you should always say, how does this saga of the lesser Joshua, that's what we'll call the man who we read of in the book of Joshua. How does this trait, this type, this action of the lesser Joshua point to the greater Joshua? I'm only going to stick with eight points of correspondence, but hopefully what you will have after these few points is a great appreciation how he is planted in Scripture, planted in Israelite history, so that Israel be expecting somebody who is always triumphant over his enemies, who always brings the people of God to rest. And so the first way that he is a type of Christ is his very name. Both Joshua and Jesus have the same name. Jesus is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew word Joshua. Both mean the exact same thing. They mean Jehovah is salvation. But I want you to notice when he is given this name, Look at Numbers chapter 13. You're going to need your Bible. You're going to have to do a little work tonight. I realize it's the end of a long day, but you can, you can hang in there for just another two or three more hours. <laughs> Numbers chapter 13. And we are told who the heads are of the children of Israel in Numbers 13. We are told in Numbers 13 verse 8 that Hoshea... The son of Nun is one of the heads of Israel. And then we are told in verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now by giving Joshua this name, by giving Hoshea the name Joshua, he's being presented as Israel's savior. Remember the name means Jehovah's salvation. 
And when Moses renamed Hoshea Joshua, he gave the son of Nun a name that both anticipated Joshua's role in history, that he would bring Israel into the land, and prefigured Jesus Christ, that the greater Joshua would bring his people into the Father's presence. It's more than interesting that that our Lord had to have the exact name, meaning the exact same thing. So when the angel appears to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is commanded, you must call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the first way we see Joshua as a type, as a foreshadowing, is they have the same name. The second way, the second correspondence we've seen between them is victory. Victory was given to this first Joshua, and it was accomplished in a much greater fashion by the greater Joshua. In Joshua's first major conflict, Joshua goes to war in Joshua chapter 6 with a, a weak and insignificant army who's not yet been in combat in Canaan. And they are standing and looking at their first battle in the promised land, Jericho, with its high walls, signifying the entrenched power of the evil one. It's a mighty act to see Joshua moving by the will of God, putting the enemy to flight. And as Jericho falls by nothing other than the saints marching around the city and the blowing of ram's horns, which at first drew the contempt and the ridicule of the inhabitants of Jericho. So too does the preaching of the gospel, which is foolishness to men, shall bring down all the strongholds of sin and error and superstition and idolatry. Now, it's very interesting in the life of Joshua. The book of of Joshua lists 13 major battles in Canaan with Joshua at the helm. It begins with, The conquest of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, followed by a a stunning loss in Joshua 7 to Ai. Then a subsequent victory over Ai in Joshua chapter 8, where Joshua is credited with burning down the city and executing its king. The scripture then records 10 rapid successive victories in Joshua 10 and 11, including massive successes over two huge military confederations. And what we see is in the the 13 battles that Joshua leads Israel in, in the book of Joshua, Joshua is 12 and 1. And he cleans up that one loss to the city of Ai. And all of this is in fulfillment of God's promises to Joshua. You'll remember a moment ago when we read Joshua chapter 1, where the Lord said to him, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And this was proven true through the conquest. Now look at Joshua chapter 11, again, looking uh, at your copy of God's Word. In Joshua chapter 11, after Joshua has gone through the land, has subdued the Canaanites, notice what we are told. This is deeply important. The fact that Joshua is completely triumphant at this point over his enemies. We read in Joshua eleven twenty three. so Joshua took the whole Land, In other words, he's supreme conqueror. He took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. 
And so that's the picture we have of Joshua. He's, he's triumphant over all his enemies in this tiny little stretch of Palestine. He conquers all his enemies there. The greater Joshua also moved out according to the will of God and conquered all that was against us. It's evident in Hebrews 2.14 where we're told that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The greater Joshua crushes Satan's power. He doesn't crush the city of Jericho or the city of Ai or the northern confederation. He crushes the evil one. We're told this in 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He triumphs over a much more mighty enemy. He destroys the principalities and powers that once controlled the believer so much that we're told in Colossians 2 that he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. He's a greater conqueror than Joshua. But the most glorious picture of our conquering general is found in Revelation chapter 19. I'm I'm very envious of our ladies in the ladies' Bible study who just began their study of Revelation. It will take them two semesters. So ladies, if you missed week one, well, you hardly missed anything by missing last week. And so you will want to jump in if for no other reason than to in the spring semester look at this study in Revelation 19 of Jesus, our mighty conquering Joshua. Look at him in Revelation 19. When you, when you look at the Old Testament picture and type, it's glorious enough. Here's this sweaty, bloody, holding a sword, standing in the middle of the battle, unbowed, unbeaten Joshua. But look at the greater Joshua in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11, where John writes, I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven... It's fascinating that even this greater Joshua, his armies are much mightier. When you look at Joshua, the the lesser Joshua in the book of Joshua, his armies are a ragtag army. And we find out quickly upon reading the book of Joshua, they don't win battles because they have superior armaments or superior training or superior weaponry or any of those things. They're usually outnumbered. They win their battles because the Lord's hand is upon them. But look at this one. Look at his armies in Revelation 19.14. The armies in heaven. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a glorious picture of our greater Joshua. It's fascinating that we are told, look at Joshua chapter 10 of our victorious, the the type in the Old Testament. We are told in Joshua chapter 10 what he does as as an act of conquest. And when you look at this, you might think it's almost strange. Look in Joshua 10, 
Joshua 10, 24. So it was when they brought out those kings, that is the kings of the Canaanite nations, when they brought out those kings to Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. But my friends, that's just a down payment. On a greater picture, when we are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that our greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ, has put all his enemies under his feet. He has put his feet on the necks of all our enemies. And so the second aspect of the lesser Joshua being a type of the greater Joshua is he's the victorious one. The third, and it's an odd historical correspondence between the lesser and the greater Joshua, both Joshua and Jesus have their roots in Egypt. Joshua was born there, suffered there in the brickyards under the taskmasters because Pharaoh assumed that the Israelites would rise up against him. And so Joshua is raised in Egypt as a slave. The greater Joshua, Jesus, was, we are told in Matthew chapter 2, was taken to Egypt as an infant by Joseph, who had been warmed in a dream of the evil of Herod, who sought to re remove what he saw as a threat to his throne. Both the lesser and the greater Joshua have roots in Egypt. A fourth point of correspondence is also geographic, and that is the connection that is in Jordan. Both Joshua and the greater Joshua begin their ministry at the river Jordan. Joshua is told in Joshua chapter 3 by the Lord that now as he leads a miraculous crossing, he will be exalted in the eyes of the people. Look at Joshua chapter 3. <clears throat> we see the Jordan connection here. Joshua 3 verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Joshua 3, 7, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then in Joshua 3, immediately following that, Joshua spoke and the waters of the Jordan parted before him as Israel moved into the land to face the enemy. As far as he and the people of Israel were concerned, the wilderness was behind them, the enemy was in front of them, and he was going to thrust that enemy out of the land that God had given to the people of Israel. It's from the exact same spot, the same location at the River Jordan that the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus, moved into the wilderness to enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods, we are told. He must first bind the strong man. And so this is what Jesus did in the wilderness. We are told in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by the devil. Jesus bound the devil, the strong man, at the Jordan in the wilderness and destroyed him at the cross. Both the lesser and the greater Joshua begin their triumphant movement at the same spot at the River Jordan. There's a fifth correspondence, and that is rest. Both the lesser Joshua and the greater Joshua, after their triumphs, rest, and they give their people rest as a sign of total victory. 
In Joshua chapter 1, we read it a moment ago in verse 13. Joshua spoke saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord is giving you rest and is giving you this land. And so we're told near the end of the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 21, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. They took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. They had rest. When Joshua had accomplished this work, it was then he was able to enter into his own possessions, his own rest. But then came the greater Joshua. When the work of redemption was complete, we are told that the Father raised him from the dead and Set him. Do you know what kind of position seated is? It's a position of rest. The reason why Christ is seated is he, his work is finished. He may rest. He's been seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Says of Christ, the greater Joshua, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's resting. But one of the great points of correspondence I want to focus on and and actually dwell on for a moment longer is the correspondence between the lesser and the greater Joshua in regards to the law. Look back at Joshua verses 1, or chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, the text that we read a moment ago. And in verse 7 and 8, the Lord tells Joshua as he embarks on leadership, to dedicate himself to the commandments of God, to the law of God. And this is preparing God's people for the greater Joshua who will perfectly keep the law of God. Massive numbers of confessing Christians today are opposed to the moral law. I need to say that again and let that sink in. Massive numbers of confessing believers today are opposed to the moral law. By that I mean the Ten Commandments. They are antinomians. Antinomianism comes from two Greek words, anti against and nomos meaning law. So an antinomian is someone who's against law. I can fill our time this evening with current examples of evangelical leaders, even men who've been PCA ministers, who would say that for the Christian. Obedience to the moral law, the Ten Commandments doesn't matter, and the person who does strive to obey the commands of God in the power of the Holy Spirit out of gratitude for free grace received is a legalist. To answer this charge, answer a very fundamental question. How did the greater Joshua view the moral law? Since Jesus is our reference point in all things, surely no Christian could oppose engaging in such an exercise. Let me make half a dozen assertions about his relationship to the law. Now, it's no mystery what the lesser Joshua's relationship to the law was. We see it here in Joshua 1, verse 7 and 8. He's commanded to keep it, to to love it, to obey it. But think about the greater Joshua. What's his relationship to the law? Well, first of all, We're told in Galatians 4 that he was born under the law. As the lawgiver, 
the person of the Godhead who spoke from atop Mount Sinai. Jesus has placed himself voluntarily under the commandments as one who had to submit to them. Secondly, the greater Joshua perfectly obeyed the law. Listen to his own words in John 8, 29. I Always do those things that please the Father. What would have happened if Jesus had ever disobeyed one single solitary command of the Father? Well, you and I would have no Savior. For then our substitute would not have been a spotless lamb and we would be damned. A third assertion about the greater Joshua's relationship to the law. Jesus taught repeatedly the enduring nature of the law. God is immutable, and the moral law, as a transcript of his character, is never modified in its content and validity. The moral law didn't begin to have relevance at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. Murder, lying, adultery, all are condemned before Moses receives the two tablets of stone. Consequently, we shouldn't expect that the law would decrease in its relevance due to the passing of the Old Covenant. And so as the New Covenant is dawning, we hear the greater Joshua, the mediator of the new covenant, say this about the law in Matthew 5. Don't even begin to think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will be by no means passed from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Another thing you must know about the greater Joshua and how he views the law. Our Joshua, the greater Joshua, has a deep affection for the law. He loved the law. He sang in the synagogue with honesty and joy the words of the psalm in Psalm 119. He sang, as, as many have pointed out, his voice was the loudest in the synagogue when they sang the words of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love thy law, it's my meditation all the day. A fifth thing that can be said about the greater Joshua and his connection to the law. Jesus repeatedly taught his followers to obey the moral law. And in so doing, he affirmed what real love for God looks like. He teaches his disciples in John 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. In John 8, Jesus affirms the absolute nature of the ninth commandment when he says, It's written in the law that the testimony of two men is true. He's setting each of the Ten Commandments up on a pedestal. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for sliding the fifth commandments and not caring for aged parents. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus defends the actions of his disciples who picked the heads of grain as they went through the field as not violating the fourth commandment. He never says, never ever, oh, the Sabbath is invalid now. But he simply clarifies his lordship over the Sabbath and teaches the legitimacy of works of mercy and necessity on it. In fact, Jesus says, here's the formula he will recite to the goats on his left at the last judgment. He will look to them and he'll say, depart from me, you who practice antinomianism. You who practice lawlessness. 
Sinclair Ferguson says, The Ten Commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured into the heart by the Holy Spirit runs. Love empowers the engine. Law guides the direction. The notion that love can operate apart from law is a figment of the imagination. Ferguson concludes, It was not legalism for Jesus to do everything his Father commanded him, nor is it for us. A final point of connection concerning the law our greater Joshua understood that the cross is all about the law. There are lots of people who, when they speak about the cross, they do so in a purely sentimental manner. I remember very well a conversation I had with an older woman in my first congregation 35 years ago. And I'd gone to visit her at her home, and we, I kept trying to get her to talk about who Christ was, what the Bible said. And I said, what does the cross mean to you? And she said, oh, I don't know, but I just love the song, The Old Rugged Cross, because it gives me goosebumps. And as I tried to explain, the cross is inextricably tied to the law of God. She said, I don't understand that. What was happening on the cross, our Savior, the greater Joshua, was enduring in his own body the just penalty prescribed by the law of God for the sin of men. The law condemns sin. And the sentence of condemnation it passes is the death penalty. The only way God can forgive you is if your sin is punished in the life of a perfect, spotless, law-keeping substitute on the cross. The lesser Joshua was charged in Joshua 1.8 to keep the law, and of course we know that he failed. But the greater Joshua did not, keeping the law in all its perfection. A seventh point of correspondence between the lesser and the greater Joshua is both of them are marked by a profound willingness to stand alone. Of the twelve spies who traveled to Canaan and brought back reports to the nation of Israel, only Joshua and his best friend Caleb recommended that the nation of Israel obey the command of God and enter the land. We see this in Numbers 13 and 14. The majority of the spies, ten of twelve, feared the Canaanites, and they, they counseled loudly the nation of Israel that they could never prevail against such fearsome opponents. And so the whole nation of Israel, two million strong, believed the ten spies and rejected the reports of Joshua and Caleb. But it's actually worse. Look at Numbers chapter 14, and I want you to see how Joshua was viewed by the people of God on that day. He was despised. He was hated. He was opposed. Look carefully at Numbers 14. This is just the lesser Joshua and his willingness to stand alone. He's paving the way for the greater Joshua. Numbers 14, verse 6, we read, But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are bread. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. 
Here's Joshua and Caleb. With a face like stone. Not running like little girls away. When two million people are saying, let's kill them. We don't like their counsel. We don't like this business of walking by faith and of obeying the Lord's promise. Remarkable courage. Yesterday I had the the pleasure of hearing my dear brother John Payne. It's the first address in the Gospel Reformation Network conference, and he stood right here in this very pulpit and did something far better than I could ever do. He preached on the issue of the need for manly courage in our day. But when I think of courage, I think of Joshua. Look at him standing there in John 14, or Judges, Numbers 14.10. Standing there with two million people starting to pick up stones. He won't change his mind. He knows what is right. He knows that they must go into Canaan, that God has promised his blessing upon them. And the only way they are delivered is... The glory, we are told in Numbers 14.10, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. But this is just a tiny down payment, a tiny foreshadowing in the aloneness and the willingness to stand there of the greater Joshua. The greater Joshua was despised and rejected by men also. When the huge mob of Roman soldiers and Jesus and, and Jewish authorities came to arrest Jesus on that Monday Thursday night. Mark 14, verse 50 tells us, All forsook him and fled. Jesus faced his captors, his persecutors, his executors alone. He bore your sins on the cross utterly alone. So much so that he could cry out, in what is known as the cry of dereliction, even the Father turned his back on him in this moment so that Jesus could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what you see is Joshua stands alone. It is simply a down payment on the greater Joshua and his willingness to stand alone. Let me give you an eighth point of correspondence. Is both the lesser and the greater Joshua are deliverers who rescue wicked sinners. Look at Joshua 2. This is actually my favorite text in all the book of Joshua, where we meet the most fascinating character, Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute who hides the Israelite scouts. And in exchange for hiding them, this Gentile prostitute enters into a covenant with the Israelite spies. Look at Joshua chapter 2 and pick up the narrative in verse 12. And notice what Rahab demands. She demands a covenant in Joshua 2 beginning in verse 12. Now therefore I beg you swear to me by the Lord since I have shown you kindness that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountains. 
lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window. Well, when we think about Rahab, this is not a woman deserving of salvation. She was a vile woman. You can't dress it up. You can't make her more attractive. She was a vile woman. When the walls of Jericho came down, I want you to notice the one household that Joshua was deeply concerned to save. Look over at Joshua chapter 6 and notice the rest of the story. In Joshua chapter 6, as walls are falling and men are being killed as Canaanites are being slashed, as the city of Jericho is being burned. Joshua, being a faithful redeemer, says this in Joshua 6, verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman that all she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household and all she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. But the saving of this one undeserving wicked woman and her household is nothing compared to the saving work of the greater Joshua. Because Joshua saves one household, Rahab and her household. That's it. We don't know. Some of the interesting commentators have said 30 people, maybe. But the saving of this one undeserving wicked woman is a picture of the saving work of the greater Joshua, who has saved a number that's so great that no man can count it, we are told in Scripture. And they all have one thing in common. They're all just like Rahab. They're all vile. They're all wicked. In fact, Paul says it this way in Romans 5, When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Put it out of your mind forever tonight. That you really didn't need a savior from sin. You really weren't that sort of wicked person. Because Paul goes on and says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the link. The lesser Joshua makes sure of the salvation of this vile, wicked woman and her family. The greater Joshua saves a multitude that no man can number. And the one thing they all have in common that he saves is desperate depravity. Isn't it fascinating that Rahab is the link between the lesser Joshua and the greater Joshua. For we are told in Matthew chapter 1 
that the Lord's genealogy, that of the greater Joshua, includes his great-grandmother Rahab. This is our triumphant Savior. This is our victorious one, the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, tonight we are grateful for Jesus, our perfect, victorious warrior, who has given us rest by laying down his life to spare us. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.